Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, she's got a lot of things on her mind to talk about now. She's taking care of her voice, so you know that she's not going to shout now. So get your headphones ready to hear what it's all about. No Fun, the Jen Kirkman Podcast, Season 11, Episode 7. That is where you are right now. That made no sense. This week's episode has kind of a bent of therapy and taking care of oneself. And so we're going to talk about how everybody's mad at Marie Kondo, who's given up on cleaning. When is it the therapist's fault when things aren't working and uh, talking about dumping therapists. I've got some personal stories on that. Trauma dumping. Is someone doing this to you? Are you doing this to other people? And there is um, a thing now where people are doing divorce registries, which I'm, I'm all for. And then some talk. I've got some uh, listener questions about ADHD stuff. And should you just go up to a friend and be like, I think you have ADHD undiagnosed. So that is on today's No Fun, the Jen Kirkman podcast. So yeah, everyone is mad at Marie Kondo. Now, I'm recording this just like a little bit ahead of time, like a little over a week. So this might be old news to you by the time you hear it, but I really didn't think it was, you know, this isn't breaking news like the president has nuked Russia. You know, if I talked about that two weeks later, you might think, you know, she really doesn't serve us when she records the podcast um, so far in advance. Actually, that example actually makes no sense. Wait, I can't get this thing to stop playing because that would be an example of 
Wait, I'm getting this whole thing backwards. Okay. The president nukes Russia, but I've been recording the episodes in advance, right? Okay. So the day the president nukes Russia, I have an episode come out that I've already recorded. And then I'm like, oh no, I can't believe a new episode of my podcast is out. And I'm just talking about my favorite kind of jelly shoes. Meanwhile, the president's nuked Russia. Well, I'll talk about it next week. And then the next week I'm talking about it and you're all in your underground bunkers or you're outside because Russia's retaliated, of course, and you're outside getting radiation everywhere and you're, you know, tuning into the latest No Fun podcast as that's what you do after a nuclear holocaust. And you're like, Jen, we know that the president nuked Russia and that Russia retaliated. We know you're like a week old with this news. This is not fun to listen to. It's very frustrating. You need to start recording the episodes closer to the date of release so that we can stay on top of things. But I feel like Marie Kondo giving up cleaning is not giving me that same, really, where were you when you found out that Marie Kondo gave up cleaning? I think you kind of find the article when you find it, and we've all got things going on. And I really don't mean to imply that we would nuke Russia first. I, I, that's not a thing, but whatever. It's not a political podcast. Okay, I cannot get this thing to stop playing. Okay, great. So let's see what's going on. I think really what's interesting, <coughs> pardon me. What's interesting is the reactions that people are having. I mean, the news itself is pretty like... Oh, she had some kids and she doesn't spend all day organizing anymore. But people are really mad at her. There was a whole thing on Twitter. And these women are like, I looked up to you. It's like Marie Kondo didn't, I don't know, sexually harass a bunch of people and start a KKK march down the street. She's just... Too busy to clean and organize, which is what your problem is. That's why you needed her in the first place. You don't get all mad because now, now she's in a different place in her life. And you know that her giving up on cleaning is still so different than yours, you slob. Marie Kondo already has everything organized. She already has everything in her home that sparks joy and nothing in her home that doesn't. So if she gives up the day-to-day obsessive organizing that She never really did in the first place, but let's say that's all she means. It still looks great in her home. Maybe there's a baby bib on the floor, but in general, she's got no excess. She doesn't have 15 shirts from a concert, you know, from the same band and concerts over the years and some trophies from high school. She doesn't have all the shit that you have. So you getting mad at her, you're mad at yourself. You're mad at yourself that you bought her book what was it now, five, 10 years ago, and you never did anything with it, but you were going to. And then she announces that she's taking a step back from cleaning and you're all mad. Oh, big deal. You weren't going to do it anyway. Here's the thing. She's not even saying anything about her career. She's saying in her personal life, I'm not cleaning that much. Who cares what she's doing? I wish she'd never said this to anybody. Everyone's all mad at this nice lady. Anyway, so here's 
here's the story. Um, Marie Kondo, as you know, if you're like, Jen, who are you talking about? She was that woman from Japan, Japanese woman, who wrote the book. Um, well, she had the TV show on Netflix called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, and then she had a book called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Wow, from 2011. Was it really that long ago? Did we just find out about it only five years ago, or am I really thinking that the hype on her five years uh, was five years ago and it wasn't? Anyway, so she's a decluttering expert, right? So she, there's, they do this article, you know, it's all over, but the one I'm reading is from the independent.co.uk. So here's what happened. She welcomed her third child into the world in April 2021. She's 38, and her husband and her are also parents to some other kids. So anyway, now there's five people in the home. Marie Kondo says she's put organization and decluttering on the back burner, and she started to embrace the mess of having a big family. She said, my home is messy, but the way I'm spending my time is the right way for me at this time, at this stage in my life, she told the Washington Post in a recent interview. She said, up until now, I was a professional tidier, so I did my best to keep my home tidy at all times. She said this through an interpreter. She said, I have kind of given up on that in a good way for me. Now I realize what is important to me is enjoying spending time with my children at home. She has a new book called Marie Kondo Karashi at Home, How to Organize Your Space and Achieve Your Ideal Life, which focuses on the Japanese concept of karashi. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Karashi or way of life. She said in this interview, I will keep looking inward to make sure that I am leading my own karashi. So she had the um, KonMarie method, which is basically... Separate your personal items into categories, clothes, books, papers, miscellaneous items, sentimental items. And the next step is to figure out which of your belongings, quote, spark joy in your home, which is a phrase that Marie Kondo famously used. So now she lives in California with her family. And yeah, so she does this interview. And I honestly think it sounds like her new book is about, okay, once you've decluttered your life, now... How do you want your home to function? You know, she wasn't, I don't think she was ever saying everybody has to be this organizational psycho. That's for other things. That's for Instagram influencers and, you know, the home edit, those girls, that show on Netflix. Her thing was get rid of your crap. And if you're emotionally attached to it, figure out if it's an emotional attachment that you can move through and get rid of this thing, which you think you're emotionally attached to, but it's actually not causing you joy in your home and get rid of it? Or do you have an attachment to it because it sparks joy? Even if it's not from your great-great-grandmother and it means a lot, it could be something stupid. Like for me, I have this sweater. I mean, it looks like a sweater. It has arms, but it's small and it's like an ugly sweater and you put it over a bottle of wine. It's just a little decoration and it says holiday hot mess. Now, it's one of my favorite things. And when I moved from LA to New York, 20 years of stuff in a two-bedroom condo, I realized how few things 
I really cared about, except for sentimental items and, you know, archives of stuff that I've done. But in terms of objects, I really could not get rid of that. I had to take it with me. You know, stupid things like that. So it, for some reason, it sparks joy. I have to be honest, though. I think I accidentally gave it away because I can't, I don't know where it is right now. I mean, it's not the holidays, so it's not out, but I, well, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so I think her thing is more, once you've decluttered, now that you're living in your space, how do you want to spend your time? Because most people with a lot of clutter and they can't really decide how to organize their home, they spend a lot of times losing things, finding things, repairing things, whatever, stepping over things, moving things to the side. So once you don't have to do that every day and you can just do what you want in your home, are you going to spend time with your kids? Or do you want one less hour with your kids so that you can do a load of laundry? You know, I think that's what she's saying. I remember I met Susie Orman. Guys, not to brag, I've met a lot of celebrities in my life. And she came to Chelsea lately and we did this sketch with her. And I don't even remember what it was. You know, Susie Orman, the money expert, she famously has one pair of earrings. She's really not into buying and wasting money and Well, I was leasing a car. I always leased a car instead of purchased. I'd purchased once and I found that it didn't really work for me. And I've done everything from purchase a cheap car with, hey, here's five grand and now it's fully mine or purchased from a car company where you have a payment. And I decided to lease because I'm incorporated. And when you lease my personal corporation, which is just me, there's more breaks on that. No pun intended but more uh, perks. Like I can write some stuff off through my corporation because I would use my car for, at the very least, if I was driving to a gig or driving to the airport to get to a gig or, you know, whatever. But also, when you lease a car, you turn it in every, I think it's two years or two to four years and get another one. So you're always paying a payment. But the thing is, when you buy a car and make a payment, the minute it's off the lot, it's worth Barely anything anyway. So as Susie Orman explained to me, we're getting fucked up the ass no matter what with cars. Cars will always be a source of money, not money trouble, but 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 cars will always be a frustrating source of having to give money to something. So in other words, if leasing works better, because now for me, when you own a car, then after five, 10 years, things start to break, you have to fix it. All of a sudden, you have this, what I call, a surprise payment on something. Oh, my God, the muffler fell out. I like a leased car because I have it for two years. I think it was two years. I have it for two years, and I know that nothing is supposed to break down. And if it does, it's fully covered. So I know for a fact I'm never spending more on this car than the whatever hundred a month I'm paying to lease it. And that's just how it is you know, and I can afford it and it's not keeping me from saving. It's not keeping me from doing things I love. Great. That works for me. And it makes me feel safer as a woman on the road alone. Maybe I'm driving down to San Diego. I'm driving home at one in the morning. I don't want to take a risk that the muffler's falling out and I'm by the side of the road with no muffler and, you know, there's monsters and rapists everywhere. So that, and Susie said to me, that is an example of using your money for something that may seem wasteful to others, but it makes sense with your lifestyle. She also gave me permission to rent and said, with your lifestyle where you are never home and you don't want to deal with this, 
You don't want suddenly things breaking or you're on tour. What happens if you're in Europe and this breaks down? And then she said, and if you ever stop touring, if you want to use your money for travel, it's best for you to not own unless, you know, listen, you have $50 million, you can do it all. But so anyway, her thing was, we have money to pay for things, necessities, bills. But if we have any leftover, it's it's there to support our enjoyment of life. And so put it where it allows you to enjoy life. So if you have to rent because owning would actually decrease the value of what you do in your spare time, then don't own. And you know what I mean? It does. It goes against the conventional wisdom of buy something and have equity. That's kind of not a thing anymore anyway. But anyways, I think that's Marie Kondo's thing is once you get all this shit out of the way, how do you want to spend your time? And she's like, I want to spend my time with my kids. Everybody's up there like, she's a fraud. Americans really can't grasp the subtlety of certain things, right? Like her whole thing was emotional. Because if you ever watched that show, I actually didn't like Marie Kondo's show. She seemed like the sweetest person in the world. And she's fine and she's a delight. But I got everything. I didn't really read her book because I feel like I don't hold on to things anyway. So everything in my place does spark joy and I get rid of it the second it doesn't. So I don't have that issue. As you know, I'm calling my neighbors, come down and take my things. But I think I did read her book for some reason, but I got everything I needed to know out of the book. I didn't need to watch the show, but I watched it anyway. And it would depress me because she's not there to do the sexy. And now here's your new makeover. Or now here is all of your cereal in see-through clear bins with, you know, blah, blah, blah. So she would basically come over, help you throw out everything and, oh, oh, my husband, no room for clothes for him in my closet. And then once she helps this woman clean out her closet, realizes, oh, I only wear these 10 things. Okay, great. So now she's got 10 things on hangers and this would make me completely mental. They weren't all matching hangers, all plastic hangers that are white, all black hangers that are Velvet. Nope. Just rando, like rando hangers that she kept from the dry cleaner. Oh, I hate that. No wire hangers. Not even, I'm not even trying to be that. I'm not even trying to be mommy dearest. I just have wire hangers, but have all the same everything. I can't stand the eyesore of mixed types of hangers. And like, oh, I've had this one since college. It makes me cuckoo. So on her show, she's not there though to say, now you need all matching hangers. All she came to do was help you throw out your t-shirt from your softball team in high school. Now your husband has room for his clothes in your closet. Everybody happy. Except Jen Kirkman watching it going, the closet looks like shit. Like, why is there one wood hanger in one wire? I can't handle it. But people would be crying. I'm so happy. You've cleaned out my life. And she leaves. She's done her job. And I'm miserable because now everything looks sparse and just not curated, right? So for me, not for me. The one thing I hate though, this is this new thing. I, I follow a ton of home decorating things on Instagram. And this new thing, it, it is so annoying to me is everything has to be out of its original container and in something else. Now I have that at home. I have oil and vinegar in these glass containers that say oil and vinegar. It's cute. I like it. Whatever. My hand soap says hand soap. It's it's a glass thing I bought. I got these things at West Elm. Okay. But in terms of laundry detergent, I have, you know, my washer and dryer are in this closet off of my bedroom. 
It's very neatly stacked, but I have the detergent there that I can grab and whatever. But people with a bigger home, I mean, I'm in a small apartment in Brooklyn, but people with a bigger home that have a proper laundry room, they've got these big glass jugs, almost like, um, you know, a thing with a spigot, like a water jug. And they have it there and it says, you know, they've put their label maker label on it and it says detergent and they pour the detergent in it and then they use the spout to to do what? I don't know, because then you have to put a little cup in under it, then pour that into the washing machine. It's too much. And then when, how do you clean those tubs? I mean, I'm assuming they get ugly looking after a while and like soap caked in on the, it's too, it's too, it's too much. And they do all these little decorating. And the new, the thing I hate is the random rope. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's this decorator thing. Oh, I'm going to put a tray down and there's going to be a vase on top of the tray and then a candle and then toss this rope thing with wood balls on it just that, as decor. Oh, put that there. No, st- what are you doing? That's not a thing anyone uses for anything. <laughs> it's fine. I, 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 it makes me completely insane. I see it all the time in home decorating stuff. But now they've now there's this thing where we've got to make the laundry corner and make the laundry room look nice. And I'm all for that. I want it organized AF. I mean, for me, I would just hide the bottles of things in a, in a closet, but, and I'm all for putting a little lamp in the laundry room. Oh, I want it as cute as can be, but I don't need all the extra stuff. Like now they have a little tray in the corner with yeah, all kinds of weird objects, like the wood thing with the beads on it. And like, I don't need tchotchkes in the laundry room. I'm going to go insane. I just need the basic stuff that we need. And the new thing I see on Instagram home stuff all the time is the coffee bar corner. Bitch, no one is doing this, okay? And it's like, then you pull this out and that's where the coffee machine is. And it's on this unsturdy thing, but it looks cool because you can pull it out and then hide it. No, no. And believe me, I am queen of let's hide this. I need everything to look nice. Trust me. This is not, let's just have everything look like shit, but it's too much. It. I don't want my home to look like an actual coffee shop. And they have this little corner and they're always advertising those Keurig things where you put the pod in, which is so bad for the environment. And you throw that and there's a little area and you have your, you know, this pod for these coffees and that, and then all the mugs are out in the open. Like, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. Nobody can live this way. Maybe people do. I don't know. But there's a lot of that going on in the Instagram influencer world of home decor. And I'm not about it. So anyway, all these Americans are going crazy because Marie Kondo is taking care of her kids instead of organizing. And yeah, there was an article in Salon.com. People were calling her a fraud. Um, somebody wrote on Twitter, she admits she's kind of given up on tidying. Where's the official apology to those of us who she influenced to make our clothes into little envelopes while we had three kids? Well, get, over, get over it. Maybe she's still doing that. Maybe she doesn't even think that's a big deal. She's like making her clothes into envelopes while she's feeding her kid, but she's just saying like every once in a while she lets something fall to the ground. Why do you need an apology? You should be happy your clothes are in envelopes, folded like envelopes. But everyone, I kind of say this, motherhood, when did it become victimhood? Everything, I know motherhood's hard. I don't know if you guys noticed, I didn't have kids, too hard for me. So I know it's hard. 
but can you just like, instead of like whining about how it's hard, can you kind of like brag about how it's hard and be like, oh my God, you know what I did? I folded my fucking clothes like envelopes and took care of three kids. Don't be like, why did I do that then? Like, just stop it. Stop it. I need everyone to stop it. I want to write a book about how to be a mother from someone who isn't one. Would that outrage the world or what? Anyway, so leave Marie Kondo alone. She's a nice Japanese lady who tried to help Americans. And like, as always, we're dicks. We're fucking dicks to anyone that helps us. And we don't truly understand what she was trying to help us with in the first place. All right. This episode will continue on Patreon. Hope you join us. And if not, I'll see you next week. And until next week, have fun. Hey, y'all. So I hope I don't regret this. I ju- As I was um, taking a break between segments here, I desperately need a back massage. I haven't been able to do Pilates in six weeks because of my surgery. And it's really affecting my back. My back is just in total knots. And I, I usually do get massaged pretty often and haven't done that because they told me don't do it because then people are going to touch your foot and it's going to blah, blah, blah. But anyway, I just got so desperate and it's really cold out and I don't want to walk the one mile to the place I normally go. But I also don't want to deal with getting in an Uber either, if that makes any sense. And I just thought, can someone just come to my place? Now, I've had this before and I don't mind people in my home. I'll wear a mask. Like, I'm not, it's fine. But I'm more just like, I can't have the chit chat and I feel kind of trapped in my home with the chit chat. But anyway, I just found this place called Big Toe Yoga, and you can send a private yoga therapist to your place or masseuse. And I know there is Zeal and Soothe. Those are two online massage apps, but I was reading the reviews and they were mostly terrible. A few five-star, great massage, but then mostly one star. It's a scam. The app doesn't work. And usually I don't take people too seriously who give a one-star review. It's always that one person that you can just see they're not emotionally regulated and you're not going to have the same issue that they have with whatever they're reviewing. But there was too many of these to where I was thinking, I I don't know, I just want to deal. But we'll see. So someone named Catherine is coming at five. I didn't want a guy coming. So we'll see what happens. Um, And if she chit-chats, she chit-chats. I just, whatever. I'm so desperate. I, I'm afraid my back's going to go out. Anyway, great story. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm paying for this, you're saying to yourself. So this week, let's talk about therapy. So I've been, I've been having a really great time working on my, for lack of a better term, mental health. Although I don't really, I don't totally file ADHD under mental health in the sense that It's not something you can pathologize. And by that, I mean, you can't always say, why do you have ADHD? What did your parents do? It is really a neurological disability. And your brain is kind of born that way. There are things we can do that can exacerbate it, that can, I'm not sure if over time make it worse, but I think it's akin to we just learn a lot of bad habits because we don't know we have ADHD and we and that not knowing can cause shame and a lot of as they say maladaptive ways of coping with the shame 
or even with the you not knowing what's wrong with you in the first place where you're having difficulty with cognitive functions like things in our executive function like time planning, time management, time blindness, procrastination, and, and everything that, that I'm saying, you, you could say, well, oh, I have that too. But it's the difference between someone being an alcoholic where their life has become unmanageable to someone who's like, oh, every time I go to a wedding, it's just my night to get rip-roaring drunk and I usually black out. That's totally different, right? Um, once in a while, you may have difficulties with time management and this and that and blah, 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 but you're not um, – it's not every second of every day. And when something like that is every second of every day, you learn a lot of weird coping mechanisms that are not giving you a positive result, but it's all you know. So anyway, that, that in, in a way, it can become a mental health issue. For me, it certainly did. But I've been having a great time. I, I signed up for this online coaching and you do Zoom calls with the coach and you do... Uh, but you mainly learn how to coach yourself. You can pay thousands a month and, and get a private coach at many places, but I don't want to spend that right now because I know that I can coach myself and it's step-by-step step and you do these workbooks. and you. Do, but it's really fascinating. And it's it's her name's Kristen Carter and she has a great podcast called I Have ADHD. And I really like her. Now, there's a million people that do what she does. But as she always says, you kind of find your people just like there's a million podcasts, but you found me because for some odd reason, you like hearing me talk about things that I'm sure other people are talking about. And so, yeah, she just appeals to me. And I interviewed her on my podcast, Anxiety Bites. And it was really listening to her podcast that made me realize, holy shit, I got an ADHD diagnosis when I was 35 and then proceeded to ignore it. So now I'm doing the work and I'm learning about just so many little things like like again like she says she's not here to give tips and tricks she's here to get to the core of who we are as ourselves so we have a lot of concepts about ourselves that may or may not be true but they come from what teachers said about us oh you're just lazy or exes said about us you're crazy or something and we have to figure out what we truly think of ourselves and what's false and what's not and and then figuring out what we like to do. So every once in a while, you have this list of things to do, right? And a lot of the list might be things you feel you should do, but you actually don't want to. And when you really look at that list from a, what do I want to do? And don't let your mind go, but you have to because blah, 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 blah. just what do I want to do? I'm allowed to say what I want, even if I do end up having to do this thing. When you know you don't want to do something and it's not a should, it's a have, then you can figure out ADHD ways to cope with having to do it. Like how do you get yourself more dopamine in order to enjoy doing the thing? Or if it's something you don't want to do, if you're like, no, no, I love having a clean house. I never want to clean it. But that takes up space in your head thinking of that over and over on a loop, then don't do it. You do not enjoy cleaning your house. Sure, you enjoy having a clean house. If you have the money, that's where you hire someone to clean it, right? Um, Things like that. So I'm realizing places that I have to delegate and pay someone to help me with things. One of them has to do with social media for this podcast. And one of them has to do with errand running and housekeeping stuff at home. And it's not full-time positions by any means, but two part-time positions, two very different people, two very different skill sets. One can be remote. One has to be obviously in person. 
and it will save about 10 hours of my week. And right now, you know, I get up early and I begin getting ready for work and thinking about work and commuting to work. Um, I'd say all of that truly begins at 9 a.m. You know, like I get up earlier, like six, but I'm not doing work stuff. So 9 a.m. and then till seven. And then I like to go to bed at 9.30. So really, I have like two hours a night. And that's like including eating dinner, going to Pilates, talking to a friend, reading a book. I mean, I I can't be always prepping meals and cleaning. It's just too much. It just doesn't work for me. And on the weekends, I just get so overwhelmed with the to-do list that I never get around to the free time. And I need that. And so I've been guilty. I've been telling myself a story. Who are you, the queen of England? Why don't you just get grocery delivery and, you know, your dry cleaning service comes to your building and you don't ever have to walk down the street. And I think, well, that's enough. But it's not. I I want someone to put the clothes away. I want someone to launder the bedding. I want someone to do the grocery shopping and put it away. I mean, delivery service is great. But it's just, I had to drill down and go, I really don't want to do these things. And I actually really hate making time for them. And it, because ADHD does affect our feelings and moods, it it's doing something to me right now, as well as I'm figuring out this perimenopause that I'm going through, which affects hormones and things. So I'm going through two really significant things that affect my brain and mood. And I want to make my life really, really easy so that I can just focus on work and then focus on having some kind of life outside of it. Because I haven't had one in about two years. So I I had to first get over my bullshit of beating myself up about, oh my God, I should save my money. That stuff's not important. It's like, I'm not spending a million dollars on having people help me. It's, it's, it's important. And it could even cause me to make more money, right? If I do better and better at work because I'm dedicating more time to it. If someone can help me with this podcast more than, you know, I can get more listeners. So it's really just stories I'm telling myself. Um, this external judge. I'm going into all that to say that right now I'm not in therapy, but for me, I had a therapist who claimed she had ADHD and I'm sure she did, but I think she was similar to me in that she just thought it had to do with focus. And there were so many things we worked on in therapy that I felt were not getting cleared up that she kept pathologizing. Oh, you feel this way about yourself? And I was like, no, I really don't. Like, I actually really love myself, but I can't ding, 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 ding this. No, no, no. Literally, I don't have intimacy issues, but I can't find time for relationships. Like all of it was executive function that we're deficient in with ADHD because the stuff wasn't clearing up after years. And I wasn't like a good therapist would know, okay, we've mined every corner of this. It's clearly not pathological with Jen. It's clearly not intimacy issues. It's clearly not blah, blah, blah. And she just like... There was no moment where she went, you know, I don't think I'm the right therapist for you because I think something else is going on and I'm not, I'm only trained in family systems or, you know, relationships. And she just didn't. And, you know, at our session every week, I was like, I didn't have enough headspace to even think of what I need to talk about. And, you know, she she took everything I did as I'm repressing something, I'm this, that, and I'm like, all of that's valid stuff, but it's just not true for me. And... I, because of all these ADHD symptoms, I'd people pleased and stayed with her too long and didn't know myself and self-doubted. And so when you leave a therapist, usually when you start with a therapist, you come in with a goal and you don't have to go 
back into your past and whatever. And a lot of times it has nothing to do with your family abused you. It could be more my parents were blah, blah, blah. Like if your parents were emotionally immature and really anxious, it's not that it so much affected you and made you this, that. They just never gave you certain tools, right? So it could be as simple. This is this is the non-mental health version. If your parents never taught you to tie your shoe, you're going to learn to tie your shoe elsewhere. And that's fine. But for some people, they may never have learned to tie their shoe. So they just wear Velcro shoes or they walk around with their laces undone. You know, this is a really bad example, but you're learning to tie your shoe. And it's not, I didn't tie it because I didn't love myself and my parents abused me. No, it's literally they just didn't have the tools. You just didn't grow up in a household where people set good boundaries. That's all. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to go into your deep, dark, blah, blah, blah. Once in a while, we're like super emotionally triggered. And it's like, oh, that's because when I was little, these things used to happen. But it doesn't like, some big deal, then you're like, oh, okay. So when I get like heightened emotionally, what should I do? Oh, I can do a cool down so that I don't react on someone. Like it's, it's very simple. I think people overthink therapy and think, well, I better set aside a year to go down the dark bowels of my brain. And truly most, most likely you don't. And you can even get some therapy. Even if you've had some like low T trauma in your life, you can even get some therapy skills and then decide later, how much do I want to look into the low T trauma? But anyway, you're supposed to go to a therapist with a goal in mind. Okay, I'm planning a wedding with my spouse. And, you know, I really just, I get really heated when I have to plan things in addition to my job. So I want to learn how to give or take better or you know, whatever. Or I've got this issue. My best friend is um, moving and I want to talk about my resentment at how she found a new job and we said we'd always live in the same city. Oh, whatever it is. Or I have this issue. I'm in between jobs right now and I'm blah, blah, blah. And then you set the goal. All right. What do you want out of this? I want to have my resentment go away. Okay, great. Or I want to not be so stressed every time I don't have a job and then find it. Great. Do you work on the goal with the therapist? Or I want to release this anger at my brother, you know, and you work with the therapist and then you, um, or I want to get over this relationship. I don't know why I'm so brokenhearted. We only dated two weeks. You know, whatever. You you figure out the goal and the therapist is supposed to keep you on pace towards the goal. And then when the goal is achieved, it's sort of time to talk with your therapist about time to end the sessions. And you have this debrief with your therapist for a session or two about how to say goodbye to each other um, in terms of did you get everything you needed? You know, it's just sort of a review. And she or he sends you on your way and you could stay and talk about another goal. Or you could just, if you liked the therapist, have them in your pocket now. Now when another a new thing comes up, right? A new phase of life. Oh God, now I'm in menopause. Oh God, now my uh, uncle died or whatever. You can call on the therapist that you already have a relationship with. But for me, my therapist didn't do that. And I didn't learn until a while ago that you're supposed to do that. So instead of saying to her, you know, we we got off on the wrong foot. There was never a goal. Um, I sort of subtly started setting goals saying, hey, here's what I'd like to work on. And then I would steer the session that way every week. But I should have just got out once I realized that I just think she wasn't that disciplined. And I think her being married and having a family and having her own issues was like enough for her. 
And I don't think she was, I think she wasn't that intuitive. And I think she projected a lot onto me. So anyway, I don't mean to say that to scare anyone away from going to therapy. Um, I think it's important to figure out what therapy is before you go. So that way you go in with some knowledge of what's supposed to happen. That way you can assess if your therapist is working for you or not. A lot of times they are supposed to trigger us in certain ways so that if they remind you of your mother, well, then you can do what they call transference and you work out your anger on your mother at the therapist. And the therapist is trained to hold that space for you. You're allowed to get angry. No one's going to abandon you, you know? So that can happen. And sometimes people are uncomfortable with those triggers and they'll leave therapy. And, you know, you just have to find a way to decipher what's really going on. Maybe talk to a trusted third party, whether it's a friend or a therapist, you pay for one session to like get their opinion. But um, if your therapist is trying to guilt you, oh, you're just triggered, mm, it may not be true. It may not be true. Or maybe, you know, so it, it's difficult. It's it's like anything else, you know, it's practice, it's intuition. And sometimes you just need a straight up set of facts. Okay, I'm going to therapy. What do I want out of it? And a lot of people just go in blindly thinking, oh, I guess my childhood's going to come up or I guess they're going to know, you know. So anywho, my point in saying all that is that I felt that because I felt my therapist's boundaries with me were so bad, and again, I didn't know this, and I used to think, I did know it at one point, but I thought I enjoyed it. I thought it worked for me in certain ways because she knew me so well, and it was just sometimes something I needed, but overall, it was not a net positive result. And so once it started to really bother me, and I started reading about how a therapist's bad boundaries can affect you. It can actually kind of affect your self-esteem. It's this weird little thing it can do where if your therapist's too close to you and they're telling you about their lives in a way that's not part of the therapy and they're saying things to you, like my therapist a couple of times said, I don't believe you. Well, I would say something offhand because I have ADHD. I sometimes say things I don't mean, if that makes any sense. Or I'll say something like, oh, I had this crazy thought, but I really, the thought doesn't bother me. And it's like, does that make any sense? I started to talk to her about, oh my God, it is just so weird that I thought this whole time in my career that it was linear, that you do this, you get this many more fans and you keep going up and that you can only really destroy your career if you have some kind of sexual abuse scandal or you really start sucking at your job. I really didn't know. And again, this is kind of the immature ADHD brain. I really didn't know that you could have two Netflix specials like I did and have two books and still not be able to find a huge audience, not because you're so outside the mainstream that you only have a small audience, but there's this weird thing that no one ever taught me that I never had articulated to me, that I never articulated in my own brain, which is I can be at the top of my game with my comedy knowing that I would probably relate to millions of people, but they haven't found me even though I'm on a streaming platform where, where millions can find me. And then maybe millions have seen my special, but that didn't motivate them to buy tickets to see me live because for whatever reason, their relationship with me is the TV. You know, like it's all stuff that I literally can't control. You go, get a publicist, do this. No, 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 I had all that. It's it's what I'm talking about is this, why some people break and why some people break break big and why some people don't. A lot of times... I mean, you could think of it on a spiritual level. It wasn't your destiny. Sure, that that literally could be an answer. It could be just, 
you've got millions of people who've seen your work. It just doesn't dawn on them to try to see you live. You know, things like that. Like if success to me was only getting a Netflix special and having millions of people, then I achieved the highest degree of my own success. But for me, it was getting hundreds of thousands of people to see me on tour. That didn't happen. And I was like, huh. So I believed in the myth of I need to do more. Social media, get a publicist, bing a bong, ga, ga, ga. It never dawned on me, oh, wait a minute, just like most things, the result is out of my control. And then once I realized that, I could relax and be like, I don't know what happened. My people didn't find me in on mass. I mean, my people did find me in smaller numbers, which is great. And thank God I make a living, a handsome living as a writer. And I love doing that. And I want to keep doing that. Like, I'm not sad that I'm not touring. But at the time when I gave up touring, because it was too hard to spend all my time finding my people, I realized that some people stick with it because they're like, oh, I might find my people in 10 years. I'd given it 10, 15 years of trying to find my people like 25 years overall of stand-up, but touring 10, 15. And I was done. I was like, oh, I don't want to then. Like once I realized it was out of my control, I went, oh God, I'll stop now. Thank you. You know, like, but some people roll that dice and they say, I know it's out of my control, but I'm going to stay touring until my people just find me, until something hits where like I wake up one morning and I'm the next big thing. That that happened to Mark Marin. You know, he was older than me, Um or maybe my age when he started the What the Fuck podcast. No, he was he was in his 40s, but he was around my age when he hit really big. And yeah, I'm like, I can't, he must love stand-up more than me. But I was saying something to my therapist about having going to a Mark Marin show and just, I was in Austin, Texas. Um, we both had shows that same weekend. So I went to his show the night before mine. And I was like in a 2000 seat theater. Now I've known Mark since like 1998 and I, I haven't talked to him lately, but I knew him really well during like the, the pre what the fuck podcast period. And then the first two years of the podcast when, you know, he would go on the road and 10 people would show up and I'd be like, what is wrong with everyone? And he, to me, is the best comedian ever. And what the, f- you like literally what the fuck. And so was sitting in that theater with 2000 people. I'm looking around and they're not all 20. It's not like they weren't alive when he first started. They're all about our age, like 40s, 50s. And I'm like, where the hell have these people been, right? And so I asked someone next to me, can I ask how you found out about Mark Marin?" And it was like, you know, five years into his podcast, once it became a hit, and then she listened for a couple of years and then realized, even though he said it all the time, but realized that, oh, the podcast isn't his first love, like he's a stand-up who did a podcast. Then she decided to get off her buttocks and go see a show. And I just doing my anthropological research, I was like, that's probably what everyone here is like. And I just thought it took what it took and they found him. I don't want to go through what he went through trying to have my people find me. But I just thought, isn't it funny? Because She said, I wish I'd known of him earlier because she loves all his back catalog. She would have been there 15 years earlier had she known about him. So Mark's 2,000 seat theaters were always there. The people just didn't know about him yet. But the amount of people that would love him, they existed. They didn't know he existed. And what's so fascinating is I actually find great peace in that. But I said, I said offhand to my therapist, isn't that so unfair? Like, what if he had given up? 
And I said, but, but what I was trying to get to to tell her is the minute I realized it wasn't out of my control in the sense that there's still no guarantee if you hang around for 20 more years doing podcasts and touring, maybe your people might never find you. And I was not willing to take that risk because I didn't love the lifestyle of touring enough to take it. And the lifestyle of coming up with material, clubs every night, working it out, trying to get another special. I really was done. I don't know what happened, but I just went, I'm not that interested in it. And what I loved about that too was I didn't have that thing that comedians have where they go, oh my God, I'm not a real comedian because I'm supposed to be like Joan Rivers and love it until I'm 80. I used to say, I will never stop doing comedy. I was wrong about myself. I'm fine that I was wrong about myself. I'm fine if some some weirdo out there says, I'm not a real comedian. You know, you got to die on stage at age 80. Okay, I'm not a real comedian. I love what I did. I don't know. I might change my mind again, but not sure how because I don't really want the lifestyle. So anyway, my point was once I realized that I didn't have control of exactly when people would find me, knowing that I could, in fact, do another 10 years, but that doesn't guarantee they'll find me. Once I realized it's not as simple as I do this, then that happens. I went, oh, oh my God, I wasn't looking at my career the way I look at life, which is I do this, you know, I eat healthy, I might still get cancer tomorrow, you know, that kind of thing. I wasn't looking at my career that way. Like I put in the effort and I was like, you know, build it, they will come. Well, sometimes they don't come. And I was like, oh, thank God I can relax. And so I was trying to tell my therapist was, in a way, I thought it was kind of unfair. Like no one, what I meant by unfair was no one tells you that it's inherently uh, not linear. I didn't mean unfair in the emotional way. I just meant it doesn't make any sense. Like it's a mystery. Why isn't she more famous? Why is that? For Who fucking knows? But I, I'm not that curious about those mysteries. I, I'm content. So what I was trying to tell my therapist is the day I decided not to tour, I was oddly not tortured by it. I wasn't like, I should have been famous. I'm so sad. No. And I wasn't like, uh, am I not a real comedian anymore? Literally have never had a decision come to me so easily that caused me zero angst. Angst. But because I had let it slip out because my mind is going a million miles a minute that I sat at Mark Maron's show and went, isn't that just unfair? She honed in on that. Oh, wait a minute. And I said, wait, don't interrupt because I'm going to forget my train of thought. Because see, if she really had ADHD, she would understand that. Like, you got to let me finish. And so she didn't. And I forgot my train of thought. And then she kept saying, you think, you know, you need to do some exercises around how show business is inherently unfair. I'm like, no, I know it is, you freak. Like, I'm not upset about it. I could not care less. And I finally got my train of thought back and I said, I honestly didn't want to spend this session talking about this. I was telling you that I'm in a good place and that it was really that simple. What I really wanted to talk about was this uh, stress about my contract over here about something, you know, something else. And like the whole session was wasted. And when I said, I really, she tried to give me an assignment with the unfair thing. And I said, you can't give me writing assignments because I'm supposed to, I'm verbal and I'm supposed to work it out in therapy. The writing assignment I'm never doing because of ADHD. And she should know that again because she claimed she had it. And I just said, I really don't have an issue with unfair. Like you've been talking a lot about it. I don't resonate. And she said, well, I don't believe you, but I'll see you next week. And after that, I never, t- that 
triggered me so hard, but not in the way of I need to be triggered. I don't, I just went, this woman is projecting so much because she used to be a musician and she stopped, right? So she was starting to get back into it. She was projecting her shit on me. And I, and that was the millionth example of her doing that. But after that session, it takes me a while to figure out my feelings sometimes about something. So after that session, it all came crashing down like a ton of bricks. Wait a minute. That was so rude. No boundary. That was session was a waste of my time. She's really trying to do the therapist thing. If someone says something and you go, ah, oh, that's your true feeling. But it wasn't a moment like that. And by the way, let's say I was in denial. Let it go, lady. And let it just simmer for yourself and for me in the next session. Don't try to force. That's another thing. You don't force that on the patient. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. You know, you let them finish what they're saying and you clock for yourself that they blurted out this word and you want to revisit it. But if they say no and they're not acting in a, all weird about it, if they're truly with no emotional reaction saying, oh, no, that doesn't resonate. And she knows me. I want to get better. So I'm never um, opposed to looking at where I'm in denial. But I would starting to drive myself crazy because she would tell me all these things that I was feeling and I would be thinking, no, I don't feel that way. And I want to get better. It must be so deeply, deeply, deeply in denial. And I thought, my God, am I the most in denial person who's ever lived? How am I functioning? And it just that she was working with the wrong diagnosis. So my point is, there was this really cool Twitter thread. Now, hang on one second. I have a plan with a friend and I need to um, tell her. Oh, it's at 4.30, not 3.30. Um, uh, okay. Okay. Sorry guys. I, I have a phone date with my friend at four 30. I thought it was three 30. I was rushing to get this done by three 30. And I made this home massage appointment for five and I just had to text my friend. Um, never mind. Okay. Sorry about that. Oh my God. ADD in action, which is me getting times wrong. Oh, okay. So the, I want to talk more, um, remind me, I'm going to remind myself. I have an update on my planner situation. I'm going to talk about it later in the episode. I just went on and on, and I didn't mean to talk so long just then, but again, I didn't take my meds today. Planner, time visible. Okay. So let's read this. And I want to hear your, 
I have been just like loving the Patreon comment section lately. Y'all are really giving me good vibes in there with just your participation in the topics that we talk about. So this woman, I don't know her, I just saw this tweet on Twitter wrote, I saw someone write that when a client doesn't return without warning, it is never about the therapist. And she wrote, sometimes it is. Oh, so in that moment, I, I was so angry at my therapist because all of the times I feel she violated boundaries came crashing onto me 15 years worth. And I was done. And I know that's not the, quote, healthiest way to handle things, but I felt she had participated enough in not doing her job correctly on someone who didn't know better that... I felt fine ending it over email and not doing the, okay, let's have a session where we talk about what worked, what didn't. I I was done. Like, I just felt like this is toxic. And there's a million other examples that I won't bore you with, but this is toxic. And I have to get this person out of my life. I mean, she's not a threat to my well-being or anything, but it was, and, and someday I, I wrote to her, one thing she knows about me is that if I need to tell someone how I feel about something, it could take me three months because it takes me a while to like make sure I feel that way or articulate something. And in the past when I've just babbled without thinking, I don't get the results I want, you know, whether you're saying I love you or I hate you to someone too quickly, it's just like now I just, I'm very emotionally regulated as, as much as I can be. And so I wasn't sure what I wanted to dump her for and how I wanted to express it. So I sent her an email the next day and said, I need to cancel for next week. I said, as you know, you know me pretty well to know that sometimes it takes me a while to realize something's bothering me and it has all come crashing down on me that I don't think our relationship works for me, but I don't want to debrief. I want to figure out what I want to do about it and I will get back to you. Now, when you're a therapist, your only answer is, sure, take all the time you need. That's it. She wrote back, take all the time you need. But I must admit, I'm a little confused. No, no. I don't care what you feel. You're the therapist. You don't tell me how this makes you feel. Now, you could say, I'm worried. Now, if you had a patient that was going on and off their psych meds in terms of, you know, they have bipolar and they're suicidal, sure. You could say, I'm concerned, but honestly, there's still not much you can do because you can't, you're not the, you're not their warden. You're the therapist. And it's a completely, uh, I don't know, not voluntary, but it's, it's up to the person hiring you. You can't force your patients to come in. So then she wrote a few hours later, this longer email, and maybe you want this and maybe you want that. And you know, it's totally normal. We can talk about like what you need or and, and, you know, if you need another therapist in New York, that's totally fine. Maybe you want to start seeing someone in person. There was all this stuff where it was like, she thought I was just nervous to say, hey, I live in New York now. I'd like someone that I can see in person. Or, you know, I want someone who's more informed about, I don't know, whatever. Well, I'm not, of course I would have just done that. I'm not afraid to fire a therapist or end a relationship. It was that I'd felt boundaries had been crossed. I was really angry. And I wanted to be able to tell her with a clear head without saying, you did this, you did that. I wanted to be able to say, here's what I think I came in for and here's what didn't work in a way that maybe could even be constructive. So I spent some time learning more about what's supposed to go on in therapy, learning what I need, talking to other um, 
people, fr- friends that I had made that are therapists. And and honestly, it's been almost a year and I've never written that email because when she wrote me back saying, and maybe this and maybe that, and it was like, you're having a hysterical reaction, an anxious reaction, an emotionally unregulated reaction to me wanting to leave and you're flooding me. I just told you I need space and you're flooding me. And at that point, I was so unimpressed that I knew it was no longer a priority to write her that email where I maybe would have written it within a month. It's now been a year. I'm just, she added more things for me to be mad about. And I'm not actively mad. It's not giving me an ulcer, but I'm just unimpressed and I don't really care. And and I know there's part of me that thinks, oh, she's going to think, oh, there's her intimacy issues. She did. But I don't treat people this way. I've never ended a relationship that way. Uh, it's just, this was toxic. You know, I've ended toxic things that way where I kind of just peace out and, you know, kind of slowly let a friendship phase out. But um, yeah, this was, it, it just it was very insulting that she thought, no, 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 let's, let's have another session so you can, it's like, I, I know about that, that you find the therapist that works for you. I, I was saying something's off about our relationship. And so she made it all about her. And then part of me started to get angry thinking, do you have like no other, do you have not a lot of clients and you always like counted on my money? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think that's true, but, and it wasn't that expensive anyway, but I just, yeah. So I still haven't written back. I don't know if I ever will. I, I probably will, but it's not on my high list of priorities. But I think about it and I make notes. I make notes about what I want to say. And I'm glad sometimes that I don't send the notes that I make because they're just emotional and accusatory. I really just want to say I didn't know what wasn't working until it hit a point where it was the point of no return. And, you know, that's the thing that happens sometimes. Sometimes this happened in romantic relationships, right? Where like, You don't know what's not working for you until it just doesn't. And then, unfortunately, it's just kind of too late and you're done. And the other person is completely shocked and you're thinking, well, I've been feeling weird the whole time. I didn't know what it was. You know, that it's, it's like that kind of thing. Anyway, so this woman writes, I saw someone write that when a client doesn't return without warning, it's never about the therapist. Sometimes it is. So all these people wrote about bad therapists. Now, again, if you have been thinking about going to therapy, Please don't let this scare you. I know incredible stories of people and their therapists. And as long as you peace out the minute you see something weird, it won't be that much skin off your back. You might have a couple sessions. You might have wasted, if you want to look at it that way, three hours of your life, you know. But whatever is bothering you now that you can't work out without a therapist that causes you to do things every day that waste your time, cause you unhappiness, you're you're not getting any positive results anyway. So why not just take a chance? But right now I don't feel I need to be in therapy because I'm not working through anything that's truly a pathology. I'm working through the ADHD stuff, which does include emotional stuff too. But yeah, so it's been very cool. I do think I will get a therapist eventually just to like have someone there to talk to if, you know, I start to feel that I can't work through certain feelings if it's resentments or this and that. And, you know, we'll see. But anyway, so this one woman wrote, I had an intro 
session with a therapist who interrupted my account of my long-term anxiety after less than a minute to go, well, of course you're anxious. You're worried your upcoming marriage is going to fail just like your parents did. And she said I had not mentioned my parents at all. Someone else wrote... LOL, every time I have not returned without warning, it's been because of the therapist. This woman, Kat, says, I straight up walked out of crisis care because instead of listening, they just said, we can't help you because you're too far away. You're just here to get an autism diagnosis. Also, that it was a straight white man in his 50s um, who found me raising my voice difficult. This woman says, I stopped going to mine because they were bad people, but they weren't therapists for me. When I go to therapy, oh, she said, I stopped going to mine not because they were bad people, because they weren't therapists for me. When I go to therapy, I'm going to get answers to questions that I don't know the answers for. If they tell me you need to work on this, and I'm like, how? I need help. Um... This is hilarious. This woman, Zoe, says, I had a therapist arrive in six-inch heels and a zebra cat suit 10 minutes late to her appointment, clutching a Starbucks takeout that she drank throughout and then excused herself to pee halfway through our session. I didn't return. Cheryl says, it's always been about the therapist for me. Judgmental statements, riding their own hobby horse, probing around in the ancient mire when I have clearly stated that I do not wish to do that and have come to resolve a present situation. I had a therapist who told me if I was going to cry in therapy, then maybe they weren't the therapist for me. One person said, one of mine called me a robot as I was crying and recounting an assault. Oh my God. My last therapist who specializes in ADHD told a man with ADHD if he missed one more session, I had missed two, well, because ADHD, we would have to discontinue. I told him, you know I'm ADHD, you know I'm gonna forget, so we'll just stop. Uh, Way to make my anxiety go up. My first appointment with a mental health therapist, I was told to lose 30 pounds, dress up and do my hair and makeup every day because if I look good, I'll feel good. Um, I once went to the same therapist my mom went to. The therapist would either constantly bring up stuff that my mom would talk about or she'd talk about her own personal issues. Okay, I just need to go back to this therapist in the cat suit. I mean, how could that actually be a therapist? That was just, is that like just someone doing improv everywhere and pranking you? Um, oh, that's totally fine. Okay. Um, hang on, guys. When you arrive... Okay, sorry. Um, All right, so anyway, I just thought that was interesting. If you guys have any stories, I'd love to see them in the comments. 
I was going to talk about trauma dumping, but I feel like we really just don't have time. Um, well, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. So this is from a listener who said, Jen, I was unexpectedly diagnosed with ADD last Friday. Of course, this email came to me months ago. I'm a 36-year-old white cis straight male, and I started taking Vyvanse a couple days ago. Obviously, ADD can be different for everybody, but are there specific things you would recommend or wish you knew for someone who is recently diagnosed? Also related, if you're convinced a close friend has ADD, but they have been diagnosed, is there a way to approach that in your opinion, or do they just have to figure it out on their own? Well, Thomas, I'll answer the thing about your friend in a second, but in, in terms of you... For me, I don't know how thorough your diagnosis was in terms of the, I'm assuming if you were given a medication, then you're seeing a psychiatrist and they're not a therapist in the sense that the sessions are shorter, they're half hour, sometimes 15 minutes, you're just following up. And they may not get into a lot of people, a lot of um, people who prescribe medication for ADHD they have a very old school knowledge of what symptoms are. And and then there's a lot of people who will say, these are symptoms for women with ADHD. And I found that although that's helpful in the sense that in children, women and boys and people who socialize as a woman or a boy, a girl or boy, um, do have different things. Like boys traditionally are more hyperactive. Girls are more, they get lost looking out the window. They're more people-pleasy, but they may have outbursts once in a while. So I can look back on it. About once a year, I would have a weird outburst that may make you look at it with one narrative. Oh, you were meant to be a comedian. But I wasn't trying to be funny. It was something I really couldn't control, but not quite like um, Tourette's, but I would just do something dumb and really not get it. And then the shame and complete emotional overwhelm of getting in trouble with anybody was too much to handle. And that's ADHD. You know, like one time I just, I don't know why I did this weird thing where I pretended that I had lost a bunch of library books, even though I didn't. And I went to the librarian and said, I lost all of these. Do I have to pay for them? I don't know what to do. And then she went into something and then I said, oh, I have them. And she was like, what? And I was like, oh, ha ha. I, I don't know why I did that. Like just weird things like that. Okay. So my point is, while I find it helpful that there are books for quote women with ADHD that might talk about the unique experience of being a woman if we're talking about, um, and again, like I'm talking about um, if you have ovaries and periods, so you might be a trans man. But if you have, you know, issues with estrogen and perimenopause and whatever. Sure. But I think men should also read books that are called women with ADHD because often the symptoms in women minus things related to giving birth hormones is, I think, undiagnosed stuff for everybody. So I think of it as try to read everything you can. I mean, you don't have to like read an entire book that's written for women, but don't shy away from thinking, these are the only symptoms you can have. And so I have a, um, a PDF file that I got from this coaching place that I work with. And if you want, I can email it to you. If you send me your email address um, and you write to nofunpodcast at jenkirkman.com, I can email it to you. I can email it to anybody who wants it. 
it's just too big to, I actually might be able to, because it's a PDF, I can post it in the Patreon. So I can do both because some people that listen to this, they're not on the Patreon page. So I'll do both, but you might want to read books by Dr. Russell Barkley and Dr. Russell Ramsey. They've written books about ADHD and search around for podcasts about ADHD and listen to it. There's tons out there, especially people with later in life diagnosis and just find out who speaks to you, whose voice you like. I mean, you know, and the big symptom of ADHD that maybe your therapist didn't go over with you because I find therapists tend to be really obsessed with focus and work is distractibility, impulsivity. You don't stop and think. You interrupt people, make rash decisions, jump to conclusions, start projects without considering the steps involved or get frustrated or bored, impulsively quit, um, emotional self-regulation. You can be explosive. You can feel emotions more intensely. Time blindness. Time literally doesn't exist to you. You do not know what if you say to someone, yeah, uh, that'll take me 10 minutes, you have no idea what you're saying. You really mean it. And then you um, don't have the kind of cognitive maturity to realize, oh, I was wrong. This task actually would take anybody an hour. Instead, you think something's wrong with you that you can't do it in 10 minutes without realizing, well, you're the one who said it was 10 minutes in the first place. It wasn't deemed by the task authorities that it should take 10 minutes. And so, you know, you never sort of self-correct after that, you'll spend another few months trying to do said task in 10 minutes. Um, it's a lot of times like people pleasing. If you ask your boss for an extension on a work project, then you think you have to work twice as hard on it when really you were just leveling the playing field in the first place. Things like that. Things that you go, what? That's it too? Gratification junkie. No tolerance for boredom. Um, poor working memory. Self-reflection. You have great intentions, but you make the same mistakes over and over. You don't set goals because really the future doesn't exist to you. There's chaos everywhere, organizing thoughts, finances, schedule tasks, relationships, restlessness of the mind. Even if you're able to focus on things, you may always tap your foot or fidget or chew gum. All of, all of these are symptoms. So um, what I wasn't diagnosed with right away was any of those symptoms. And I wasn't told to work on it myself. I thought there's just these experts out there, but the truth is ADHD is very under appreciated, very misunderstood and not studied really. There are people who study it. I just named them Dr. Russell Ramsey, Dr. Russell Barkley, um, Sari Solden, who wrote Women in ADHD. There are great books out there, but in general, I don't feel like the people prescribing medication are always up to date on all the things. It it gets to be, seems insane after a while when you describe symptoms to people and what you're going through and they're like, Jesus, is everything ADHD? But it literally is because it affects, I keep saying the executive function of our brain. That controls everything from writing a check to pay the bill to who you choose to partner with romantically to sex to doing it, the laundry, to getting your work done, to being an entrepreneur. Like, like yes, it every aspect of your life, your sleep, your waking, everything is affected by it. So if people in your life are getting tired of hearing you say, well, that's ADHD, tough shit. You're tired of it. You've been living with it undiagnosed for this long. But what people didn't tell me is the goal is not the way it would be maybe with 
other things like, I don't know, healing a bone that broke. The goal is not to get from neurodivergent to neurotypical that, that physically can't happen, but the goal is to work with what is hard for you and what you lack and either find ways to help yourself, do things differently, learn how to do things at all for the first time, get help, get help with tasks, get help with things, communicate, how to communicate about it to the people in your life. So you're probably going to find that maybe spending this next year being really curious and reading everything you can about it so that you can learn how to take care of yourself. That's not going to happen in the therapist's office. It's not going to happen in the psychiatrist's office. So for me, I feel like ADHD coaching is the most helpful. Not that everyone has to do that. I get a lot of information. You can get information on ADHD on Instagram, TikTok. Um, There's an ADHD magazine called Attitude Magazine, A-D-D-Itude. You can just Google that and you can get free subscription and then there's a paid subscription. So just if going down rabbit holes and curiosity are symptoms of your ADHD, then use it to your advantage. For me, I'm very interested in this and I want to be an ADHD coach someday in, in years and years to come. So I'm obsessed. It's my new obsession of the moment. So I, I'm i reading all I can about it. Um, so I would do that. Just empower yourself and know that while the goal isn't to become, quote, normal, the goal is to notice every single way that ADHD has impacted your life and learn about how that's affected you emotionally, how it's affected how you see yourself. And just work on some of that, which you can do, again, through reading these certain books and also realizing you need to start doing things differently to help yourself. And you may feel kind of lame about it at first and no one else has to do this. Yeah, they don't. But you don't have to do what someone else has to do who has type 2 diabetes. You know, we're all different. So for me, I'll give you an example Remember how I kept talking about my fucking planner? I need the right planner. I need the right planner. Nothing works. Then I saw this YouTube video where this woman said, I can't believe I watched it. Something in my brain said, Jen, you you watch this. I don't care that you don't want to and that you don't have the patience for 13 minutes of this video. And I watched this woman say, the problem is not the planner. It's you. Now, while I have not found the, the perfect planner for me, the, the recent one I'm using seems perfect. And you know why? Because I realized it wasn't about the planner. Now, of course, there's going to be preferences. There's ones that don't work for me. But this woman said, you are just getting high off finding the perfect planner, the fantasy of who you're going to be once you start using it. And and I went, oh, that's true. So it it chipped away one thing. But then I kept still trying to find the perfect planner. Then with the ADHD coach I'm working with now, I watched one of her videos and she talks about bedazzling, getting ready to get ready. Everything has to be perfect before I can start this thing. But in terms of getting things done, writing things down on a to-do list was not doing anything for me because I would get literally a dopamine hit because basically what ADHD is, is we lack dopamine. So dopamine, you feel it when you're falling in love. You feel it if you, you know, eat chocolate, you know, whatever it is, that, that high you get. That's when our dopamine is spiking. But then there's just normal old dopamine that's running through our system all day long. It's the thing that makes you go, ah, I don't love paying bills. It's kind of boring, but you can sit down and do it. With ADHD, you can't even begin. And it 
looms over your head and it's all you can think about, but you physically can't. That's a dopamine. That's a lack of dopamine. But we get these dopamine hits by doing things that feel good. They're not actually productive. So for me, it was the perfect planner. And as this woman calls it, bedazzling the planner, getting ready to get ready. I would make a to-do list 30 things long for every single day. And I finally realized, okay, I can't get 30 things done in a day. And I came to some self-acceptance. Great. But I would still make a list with 30 things per day. Absolutely no priorities. Because with ADHD, I can't prioritize and I didn't want to take the 10 minutes to do it. So I would just knock some things off the list. And then the giant list of now 25 things would go to the next day. And by the way, I would never look at it to see what I had to do. I would just naturally do something, then find it on the list and cross it off. That's how I've been living my whole life. So now I did this exercise that I won't get into because long and explanatory, but I did this exercise. I'm doing this time management course and I do a little bit every morning and I did this exercise and I had to drop the notion of a day planner. Now I have one, it's on paper and it has the week ahead and then it has like a a to-do list on the side and that's your to-do list for the week and there's maybe like room to write 25 things total. And I thought, I can't do that. I need a hundred, you know, and I only do it for things that I don't want to put in my reminders, but I have this open on my desk all day. And then I just have it on paper so I can look at my schedule just so I can just see how busy certain days look, but I don't need it. It's just extra for me, but it doesn't take any more time in my life to attend to it. It's not getting me high. So what I had to do was I had to release this mythology of the planner and who I'm going to be, which I talked about on previous episodes, but I actually really released it when I decided, so how am I going to remind myself to do certain things? See, because what I did was I released the notion of there's a perfect planner. And then I didn't use a to-do list or a planner or my computer for a month in terms of tasks. And that wasn't working either. But there was an emotional journey to getting my new system that I now use. I actually felt some kind of way, as they say, about it. I felt sad. I don't know why. And so instead of, you know, I don't have to go back into my childhood or anything, it was just, okay, so weirdly, hi, sadness. You're going to be here while I set up my new system. And it was there. And then it went away and the system started working anyway. For I don't know, it was like emotional to give up the to-do list because it's a dopamine hit. I was having a little dopamine every night. And every morning I'd wake up expecting to be a different person and I wasn't. And then I would get low and then I get the dopamine hit again with the list. It was just stupid. So now on the Mac, there's the notes section and I will not allow a to-do list to be in the notes section. My notes are thoughts that might come to me on the subway and I don't want to forget so I'll put, you know, I want to research dogs. Or I don't, but something like that. Or I have in my notes section, show prep for no fun and, and, you know, the list of home workouts that I like to do and the links to them on YouTube, you know, things like that. I use my notes section for a lot of things, research, articles I want to read about health. But for the to-dos, the goal is to get these things done. And what I realized is I never want to do the to-do list. I just want to make the to-do list. And I just want to cross things off, but I want to do the to-dos. 
And so I had to realize how many of these things do I want to do a day? And it's like one or two. And so I would pick, okay, so I have to call my storage space in California that I forgot I had. And I need to ask them if they can cut the lock off. And then I need to call this guy to empty it out for me. That's what I wanted to do list for two months. So now what I did was I put it in my reminder section and I put it for one of the days last week. And I set it for a realistic time. Okay, let's see. I do 8 a.m. No, Jen, California. It's 5 a.m. there. Oh, okay. All right, 12 p.m. Okay, so at 12 p.m., if I'm not in the writer's room, I will call this place. I will take that one step. And then I set it to remind me every hour just in case I was in the writer's room at 12 and couldn't do it. It's going to keep reminding me every hour. So any second that I free, I'm just going to call this place really quick. And I did. And then the next to do was now you text the guy that helped you move and you find out if he can do storage spaces. He can. Great. So then the next reminder was now set up a date with him to do it. And I would put it, I have this in my reminders. They're just each individual things and they pop up at a time. So what I learned was I need to make time visible because we have time blindness. Time is visible when a reminder pops up and says, do this because I'm never going to look at the to-do list. And I'm going to know it's there and I'm not going to want to look at it. But this, when I'm sitting there with my executive function, part of my brain being forced to work, executive function, uh, Jen with the good executive function has made a decision that on Wednesday at noon, she wants to call the storage space. I made that decision with a clear head, non-emotionally, everything in working order. And I put that in my calendar. So when it pops up, I might be in a dysregulated state. I might feel overwhelmed. And in that moment, the little kid brain goes, don't do that right now. Go nap instead. I say, excuse me, thanks for weighing in, but executive function on point brain, put this reminder in here for this time. So that's what we're doing. Okay. And then my little kid goes, okay. And I do it, but it's one thing. I don't do 50 things. I do one thing. And then guess what? That reminder goes away. And right now I have like five things to do this month and they're all set on reminders. And I'm realizing, oh, like I'm not that overwhelmed. I was just putting everything on my to-do list. Even like call a friend, which when you put that on a to-do list, it becomes overwhelm. And then I can't manage relationships. So now I put call a friend in my calendar and I block off time. I don't even try anymore. Let's set a phone date. That's going to make me blow you off. With some people I have to, but I'll just use that hour and I will call people. And if they answer, they answer. If they don't, they don't. And then if we want to set a phone date from there, fine. But I've spent three months texting people. Let's set a phone date. Sure. And then we blow each other. It's like, that's just, so it's like I'm making it visible. And then I don't have this to-do list hanging over my head. Now in the paper thing that I keep on my desk at work, I might write, um, watch this documentary about ballet today because the show I'm working on is about ballet. And like, yeah, I might, like, I know I have to do that anyway, but it makes me happy to write it down. But I don't need to set a time to do it because that's just going to be like whenever I feel like it. So the kind of whenever I feel like it, it may or may not happen, but I'd like to watch a documentary about ballet. 
read, you know, read more of this book you're reading. I just put that on the thing just to remind myself if I'm bored, like, what are some things I can do right now? Oh, yeah, I want to, you know, that. But I don't put it on the to-do list because I'm already, I already know I have to read this book anyway. But so there's no to-do list anymore. There's just reminders that pop up. And I've never been happier. I mean, it's like, it, this was revolutionary for me. And no one really told me to do it this way because it's different for everyone. But I knew when I heard you have to make time visible, I knew that my to-do list was invisible because I wasn't looking at it. So dear reader, dear listener, it's things like that that are going to come to you, but you're not going to learn nitty gritties like that at your psychiatrist. And, you know, I just got a new one because I'm on medication and my doctor in LA can't prescribe in New York. So, and and his thing is like, I would have gotten a new person anyway, because he didn't know shit about women's bodies. He was like, all he talked about was, and how's focus at work? And I was like, listen, like, I don't have trouble focusing at work. What I have trouble with is transitions. So if I'm at my desk and my bosses said, okay, um, come in at 1030. We're going to meet in the writer's room. Okay, great. So I'm in at 1030 and I'm at my desk and I find out from their assistant, oh, they're running late. They've got a meeting. They'll probably be in between one and two. Okay. So I know I have from now until one and two to do my own thing. So I'll start doing my own thing. And then all of a sudden the bosses come back at 1230 and they're like, hey, we're back. Let's meet. Everyone like gets up and runs to the writer's room. I'm emotionally apoplectic. Not because I'm in the middle of something. It's like, that could be true. I'm hyper-focused on something already, but the transition, whoa, 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 how do I transition from doing my thing, sitting in my cozy office to getting up and now being with eight people, everyone talking at once? I need, I need more time. I needed to, I needed a 20 minute heads up so I can like brush my teeth, do that, but I don't get that. And that's okay. So I have to be prepared that there's going to be a harsh transition potentially coming. And so I have to do whatever I need to do to prepare for that. Weird things like that. Because I'll dawdle and be 10 minutes late into the writer's room and no one knows why. Or I'll get in there and I'll be so angry that I just had to transition against my will that I will zone out and not pay attention on purpose as this rebellion and this way to get a dopamine hit of just thinking about what I feel like thinking about. It's not literally... I can't focus. I'm daydreaming. I just don't have that. But I have other things that really affect my being able to do a job without working on myself and taking some medication. I get overwhelmed being around that many people all day long. You know, so it's going to affect my ability to meet you for dinner after I'm done at the end of the day. I'm just done. You know? Or whatever, I'm masking, I'm, I'm doing well with all these people and people can't believe I'm not an extrovert. Whatever it is, my psychiatrist like really did not understand any of that. And he was always like, okay, I'll give you 25 Vyvanse and you just take it on work days. And I thought, what on earth are you talking about? They do recommend if you're on a stimulant like Vyvanse that you skip a day or two here and there when you feel you can because it, it tends to work better so you don't keep upping your dose. But I've been on the same dose for two years not addicted. I've gone a month without taking it, like when I had shingles. Um, it helps my brain. And weekends when I didn't take it, I was sometimes unable to get out of bed because 
I just, the littlest things was like, I can't do it's, it's literally makes your brain function. It's not getting high on cocaine. And again, I could fall asleep on a Vyvanse, which someone who doesn't need it couldn't do. So I was, I saw this new woman who's here and she's not technically, technically a psychiatrist. She's a nurse practitioner that can prescribe, but she works in the psychiatric ER and she's young and she's curious and she studies all these things and she has an expertise in ADHD. So did my old doctor apparently, but he only knew focusing at work. And that's, I mean, it was whenever I tried to bring in other things or he'd say, how's the mood? And I'd say, well, this week bad, but you know, it's hormonal. And he'd say, well, was there something that happened that, you know, did you have a fight with someone? Was I go, no, hormonal. Like, dude, what don't you get about hormonal? Like I'm going through a change of life. <laughs> and when there's less estrogen, your mood drops. It, they all of the chemicals in our brains work together. Estrogen affects serotonin, affects dopamine. So if you already have ADHD, like you're kind of fucked during any lady times. And he's like, hmm. And he doesn't look like, huh, I don't know about that. He looks like, huh, that sounds like bullshit. Like I can just feel it. This woman was like, what does he mean? He only, you can't take it every day. What is he talking about? I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, yeah, of course, skip days here and there. It's good to do that to keep your tolerance there. But she's like, most people, when they need it, they don't get a need to increase it because, and she was like, you know, ADHD is one of those things where your brain always has it. The medication you take can last anywhere from eight to 12 hours. And then the rest of the day, you're just left to cope. So imagine if you can't see and you can wear glasses only eight to 10 hours of the day. You've got to figure out what hours of the day do I need to see the most? Like we, there's just completely hours of the day where we have to cope with these actual feelings and, and, and um, how hard it is. And we're told like weekends, oh, just fun. ADD doesn't affect you on weekends. It's just not a thing. I mean, that's why on weekends I'm locking myself out. I'm late to meet my friend. I go to the ballet. I forget my ticket, which is fine, but we're right on time. And now I have to stand in the box of his line and I'm not going to be let in. You know, that shit. Or I got on the train and I zoned out and got off at the wrong stop or didn't realize I was going in the right direction. Do you know how many plans on weekends were fucked up? because of my ADHD, because my doctor wouldn't give me meds to take on the weekend because he thought that was, you know, and I also was like, I work on the weekend sometimes. I'm prepping podcasts. I'm all this stuff and I'm doing research and it's not a, oh, I'm a workaholic thing. It's just, I don't, it's not nine to five mad men. Then on the weekends I'm drinking. It's like, I just, anyway, I love this new woman. She totally gets what's going on. And my psychiatrist when I said, oh, well, you know, it's been great working with you, but now I'm going to find someone who's local. He's like, oh, yeah, who'd you find? I'm like, oh, I'll give you her info so you can, you know, he's got to catch her up on what he was working with me on. And I'm like, you know, she's a practitioner, but she works in the psych ward and she's, she can prescribe. And he's like, oh, I would go with like an official psychiatrist so you can also get therapy and involved. I'm like, he's never done anything therapeutic day in his life. She was fully like doing a therapeutic discussion, if that makes sense. She's completely versed in women with ADHD and the emotion. I mean, it was just hilarious. So I don't know. So in regards of your friend with ADHD, I mean, your friend may or may not have it. There's also comorbidity. Some people also have anxieties and people also have OCD. I would just say to your friend, you remind, I mean, 
ADHD is one of those diagnoses that in a weird way, it's not usually insulting to tell someone. Usually it is someone else who diagnoses us and we're like, really? And we're kind of relieved. So if you notice a specific thing he does or always complains about, you could say, you know, that actually sounds like a symptom of ADHD. I don't know. if you So the more you educate yourself, which is what I'd recommended, the more you might be able to tell your friend in a graceful way, oh, you know how you're always like stressing about how to prioritize? It's kind of an ADHD thing. You might want to look into it. That's all. I mean, it shouldn't be that big a deal. It's not, you know, no one should feel insulted or judged. It's, it's, it's simply just a neurodevelopmental disorder. And there's signs of it everywhere if you know what to look for. So if you really feel like you're seeing something, say something. But then let them find their own way after that. Because they'll probably circle back to you at some point. Could be in a month, could be in five years saying, you know, I finally got a diagnosis because of that one thing you said. But it's not going to, they're not going to suddenly become a new person who's making phone calls to doctors and organizing their life because you said that. So just make sure, you know, that you have his or her best interests at heart. And that you're not telling them so that you can sort of make your life easier in any way or control what they're doing, you know? Um, I don't. I think it's fine. I mean, other people have told me they think I have it, and that's why I went to a doctor. So anyway. Hey, guys, I am talking so much. And again, this is why I need to take my meds, but I didn't today. Um, because I'm really kind of chatty and I can't get to what I said I was going to get to. I'm going to skip the trauma dumping. I can link to the article in the show notes. Um, it's just about how to avoid doing it. I might talk about it at the top of next week's episode so that it's for everybody. So if you don't subscribe at the next week's level, you can hear it. So I think I might just do that. Okay. So this is another Subscriber. Hi, Jen. I recently came back as a Patreon member. I left a little while ago because I was going through an upheaval in my life, a divorce, and I just had to unlink, unsubscribe, on you name it because of this emotional and financial upheaval, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I'm so glad to be back and to hear your voice again. I'm writing in because you touched a little on marriage and divorce and change in your answers episode. It was nice to hear you talk about it because I ended a 20-year relationship with my partner just under a year ago. It was the right decision, but I'm still grieving, still feel anxious, and still feel guilty. I imagine that's all normal, and I'm dealing with it in my own way, through therapy, good friendships, meditation practices, etc. Some additional context, if it matters, I'm a gay white man, turned 50 this year, and I have a complicated relationship with my family. All that plays into the grief, anxiety, guilt cocktail. If it wasn't too personal for you to talk about, I'd be interested to hear how you have gone through your processing of relationship changes. Did you experience grief, guilt, anxiety, regret? How long did those feelings last? What have you learned by going through these experiences? I'm happy to give you more background on my relationship and how it ended. You mentioned in the past that you enjoy being nosy and like hearing other people's stories. But if I have to do that in this email, it would go on for another 20 pages. I'll spare you that. Thanks from Kevin. P.S. It was a great comfort listening to your podcast as I did a lot of moving cleaning out storage units, packing and unpacking boxes, cleaning, et cetera. Thanks, Kevin. Well, I forgot that part of your email asked me to expand on my experience. And I'm going to be honest, I don't have the bandwidth to talk about it right now. But to be honest, I also don't have that much to say about it. I will just say this. 
I'll just skip to what I learned that as they say, you know, the five stages of grief, denial, depression, anger, whatever your stages are, and they can be anything. It's not linear. It happens when it happens. It comes up out of the blue. And this is where I think things like somatic therapy and reading books about you know, it doesn't have to be trauma, but just like how our body kind of knows. You know, when you get that, you 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 meet someone and you feel that in your body that they're a creep or a freak or just someone that may not be right for you. And sometimes your brain can intellectualize, oh, it's fine. And then, you know, whatever you end up doing, you end up getting involved in a business with this person or dating this person or being their friend. And when it all ends, you always go back to, I knew in my body that was not right. So I say that to say, I think we know in our bodies sometimes what's going on. So for me, with grieving and stuff, what I've learned is all of that gunk is in my body. And it's going to come up sometimes. And that's my body's way of hitting my brain in the head and going, hey, feel this. You know, it's not even that we have to figure it out. A lot of times we just have to feel a feeling and go have a good cry or just feel it. And then when we're feeling something, what I've learned is ask myself if how I'm feeling is pure in the sense that am I just feeling sadness? Am I just feeling regret? Because yeah, it's sad when something ends. And and you know, but are you adding? Well, I wasted my 30s. I could have, if I didn't get married, imagine what I would have been doing. I would have started a seven-figure business. Well, I would have had sex with every handsome movie star in the world. You know, don't make up a story of what you would have done if you hadn't done that because you don't know And if you want to make up a story, then maybe your life would have been worse those years that you got married if you hadn't got married. Who knows? But the point is, sometimes we can feel sad. And if we inspect why we're feeling sad, we might realize we're beating ourselves up and going, oh, my God, how could you have destroyed his life like this? How could you blah, blah? You'll never meet anyone who gets divorced at 50. You should have done it when you're 30. You know, whatever. So for me, if my body is telling me, hey, 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 you know how like you had plans today, but you kind of woke up feeling sad. Let's just sit with that. Can you be sad and do what you're doing today? No? All right. Maybe you need to stay home and be sad. Do you need a journal? You know, it's like a lot simpler than we make it. It's just not easy. That's what I've learned. It's simple. It's just not easy. It's like these feelings, they do whatever they want. And a lot of times they hang around as long as they're supposed to. And a lot of times they might hang out longer in our body because we're refusing to look at them. And I think a lot of people confuse looking at feelings with feeling feelings. I feel like sometimes the best way to look at feelings and to process them is to feel them and help move them out. The way our body digests food, right? So I think a lot of times when we feel a feeling, we want to analyze it. And I think sometimes we just have to be with it But the one thing, if you want to analyze anything, is just analyze what you're thinking about those feelings. Oh, I'm a loser. It should be over by now, this grief. And just go, oh, well, no wonder it feels worse. I'm saying all these terrible things to myself. And, you know, there's a million different ways to work on how to not think those thoughts. And people can do that with the therapist or they can do some kind of workbook. I don't know. But for me, that's what I learned is a lot of times... I was just judging my feelings instead of feeling them or trying to analyze them instead of feel them. And the bottom line is, I don't know. Like, I kind of just appreciate the mystery. You know, I 
I, I, I felt grief after my divorce, but I knew it was the right thing. It's a huge risk because you, you, you get to the point where you just like nothing is comfortable. Being in the marriage isn't comfortable. Thinking about ending it isn't comfortable. But you take the leap and there's going to be times where you regret it. And I think that's normal, especially because now you've got to get uncomfortable. Live alone, move, tell everyone. You know, you're going to regret it. And obviously in those moments, you kind of know, do I really regret, do I really miss them or do I just wish it were easier? And in a weird way, being with them but not being happy is easier in my dumb brain than, you know, starting over and giving myself half a chance, you know. Um, so, of course, you know, you're going to have those feelings. You're going to have guilt, especially if you thought you wanted to end it for a while and you upset someone and you think, God, I could have, why did I waste the last three years of their life knowing it? It's just like, you got to forgive yourself, you know? And, and I, a lot of times I was sad. I didn't know why. Cause it's just sad. It's just sad. And a lot of times I felt guilt because, you know, I thought as the one who ended it, I should have known better. I never should have done it. You know, you give yourself all this power. Like I ruined their lives. And well, maybe you did. Let's just take it to the work. Maybe you did. And you know what? Unfortunately, that's for them to work through. It sucks. Sucks. But if you truly did not intend to ruin someone's life, then you're just a human who made their own mistakes. And it hurts your life too, right? But it does. sometimes it's just sitting in the reality of like, yeah, I fucked them up for a little bit, you know? Um, so that, that's my only advice is I've noticed for me when I'm ruminating on thoughts, it's cause I'm not feeling a feeling and it's probably going to go through my digestive system, so to speak, if I just feel it. It's funny how sometimes when I look at a thought and feel it, it, it goes away so quickly that sometimes I think, wait, did I just scare that feeling away? You know, I start overanalyzing and, and sometimes it's like, I just need to cry for five minutes. It's really good to get that shit out of your body. So what I wanted to say is this really fun article. Let's get everyone's thoughts on it. Divorce registry. I love this idea. I mean, it's kind of awkward because, you know, if you had a wedding, people bought you stuff. And uh, if it doesn't work out, I've had people say to me, when I was moving to New York, oh, remember that thing I got you for your wedding? Are you bringing it? Ugh, no. You know, or you move out for the first time and you don't bring stuff that you got at the wedding because it reminds you of the fucking marriage. And sometimes people who, sometimes people who are still married or who never were married, they don't really understand that and they can make you feel guilty. I bought you that gift. Okay, calm down. You bought me a gift and I gave you free drinks and a dance party all night. We're even. I don't have to carry the gift around for the rest of my life, you know? Um, so I would feel awkward going, so I know you all bought me a present for the wedding, but I'm getting a divorce. I believe in a divorce registry more than I do a wedding one because here's the thing. If you and your partner want to get married and start a life, unless you're 18 and this is 1901 and everyone lives with their parents and they have no money or you're both students full-time and you can't work, you know, most marriages is like, oh, we're 35. We're both, you know, making six figures. I'm not buying you shit. Buy your own shit. You know, you can afford to get married and and and, and uh, have a wedding 
and and have a honeymoon. You, no presents. Especially if you, people are flying in. I, no, no, no. Too much. I'm embarrassed that I had presents at my wedding. But I got to admit, I got caught up in present fever. I love getting stuff. Are you kidding me? But honestly, because I got rid of it all during the divorce, I wanted more stuff. And I was having more financial problems during that time. So I could have used this. So I believe no wedding registry, not even pay for our honeymoon, nothing. You get nothing. And we'll all save our money for your potential divorce. And if you don't get a divorce, great. Then we'll save even more money. And, and no, no bridal showers with the gift. No. And it's so funny to me because, and this is my weird generational resentment, but you know, every once in a while in general, when I know that like millennials and Gen Z think Gen X and boomers are so old and out of touch and they need, you know, they saved the country with their votes. Every once in a while, whenever I hear young people talking about getting married, people in their 20s and 30s, I think, oh, really? So you're the generation that's going to save the world and you're still doing the straight patriarchal getting married thing and spending all your money on a wedding and making your friends. But oh, cool. Oh, no, no, no. You're so modern. No, you're literally saving the country. No, no, cool, cool. Like I'm old. I'm a boomer. I'm out of touch. But you're doing traditions that literally we don't need to do anymore. No, no, cool. No, get it. I'm I should just die. But you're young and uh, just changing the world with your, you know, it's like these are my deep, dark thoughts that every once in a while I'll just burst out with. I mean, do I judge anyone getting married? Absolutely not. But I do wonder when all this madness will end with um, the ritual around it. I mean, I think, look, we're a nation of laws and insurance companies, and there's reasons to get married financially and legally. Go for it. I just, I literally can't believe we're not past the whole wedding thing. Um, I really can't, especially if it's not religious. Okay. So this was on the cut. And that's easy for me to say because I had a wedding. I did not want to. And I know you go, well, why don't you just, I, I listen, like I don't have the answers. I just, I had to give in to what everyone else wanted. I At least I felt so at the time it would have been, I don't know, who knows. Anyway, okay, so this is in the cut.com. Uh, a friend of mine got divorced not long ago. Her new apartment is clean and quiet and every single object vibrates with significance. Here is the kettle. Here are the light fixtures chosen hastily out of necessity. Divorce brings inanimate objects to life. The sheets you slept on, the kitchen clock that oversaw your morning routine, the wooden spoon that stirred the chili. These can conspire against someone who's trying to start over, threatening to suck them back to the past. The belief that our stuff has the power to help us or hold us back inspired sisters Olivia Driesen Howell and Genevieve Driesen to set up the Fresh Starts Registry. By 2021, both were out of long-term relationships. Genevieve had ended in an engagement not long after Olivia had gotten a divorce. Now they help people create registries so a community can assist them in setting up a new household. We don't see these things as gifts, Olivia tells me. This is a support registry. It's not about the sheets and towels. It's about the decisions that you're making to make a big change. The timelines of life's big milestones have changed. We're living longer, marrying later than we were decades ago. Our gifting conventions should change as well. Right. This is what I just said. Unlike the 1960s, rare to live together before marriage. So you had to have a wedding registry. But even as divorce rates have slowed a bit, divorce remains popular. <laughs> it's the latest craze. Um, it's still number one on the charts. We keep finding ourselves alone in empty apartments with a duffel bag of clothes and a mishmash of objects that remind us of a previous life. 
The Fresh Starts Registry offers curated room collections for the kitchen, the bedroom, the bathroom, and bundles of basics. Like a $99 bundle can get you sheets, towels, cutlery, and a toothbrush set. No frills, but the care put into the curation has a comforting effect. How many recently divorced people have abandoned a search for new sheets simply because the act of sifting through the garbage of inane reviews is too much to bear? Uh, the, the author of this article says that her friend who's in the process of a divorce sees a divorce gift registry as a way for friends to do some emotional labor out loud. It beats flowers. Reactions to the news of a divorce are often, I'm so sorry, but how about a little here's to new beginnings or wow, that's big. What can I do? It gives people a way concretely to help. You could tell a friend, well, I'm rebuilding my life, starting with my stuff. There's no playbook for modern divorce, but a registry could create a way to acknowledge the issue without delving too deep. Also, people in a divorce need someone to pick up the kids, someone to help rearrange furniture. So the time less spent shopping for things is better for them too. Um, Kimberly Harrington writes about her life post-marriage in a newsletter, and she says, folks, oh, forks, <laughs> that said folks, forks are an easy problem to solve. What you really want are people to show up for you. That's what people are asking for in those moments of change. Oh, I think she means forks in the road. What I would have liked was for friends to be more available to hang out and get drinks when I was getting divorced. I want to host people and for people to be hanging out in my apartment. So. We may need new stuff, but what we really want is our housewares to become invisible again through our loved ones. We want our mugs to warm our friends' palms, not just sit neatly in a little row. So there you go. Um, businesses like Fresh Starts want to be part of the destigmatization of divorce. They want it to be seen as it should be a life change rather than a shameful detour. Maybe commerce is the only way to find us where we live right now. If we can start buying people things after divorce, performing an act of encouragement, not an act of pity, maybe it'll change the culture's view of life after marriage. Loneliness persists and cheap stuff proliferates. We work with what we have. So there you go. I love that idea. And what do y'all think? And again, super long episode, which I think a lot of times can be fun, but I do feel like I was out of control babbling. Again, everyone, take your medications. All right. Until next week. Have fun. <laughs>